0: Jesus, after the week that we've had, as a spiritual family, it is good to be reminded that um, death is an enemy that has no power over us. Jesus, your life, your death, your resurrection conquers that, and in that we have hope. And so would you this morning in this place massage hope into our hearts uh, that we might be um, attentive to it, to you, that our affection for you might grow, that we might more faithfully be your people. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Have a seat, have a seat. Welcome, welcome. Uh, my name is Kyle. I get to be one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm going to send the kids back with Kayla and young Dan of all the Dan's. He's the youngest. Uh, so we're doing that. We're going to be in second Samuel chapter two. So if you want to grab a Bible or Google that second Samuel chapter two, uh, getting myself set up here, I'm not seeing a text. Um, Uh, Hey, listen. uh, Steph mentioned a minute ago the the couples conference, and really just want to encourage you if you are a couple to be there. Uh, It's always a lot of fun. It's a good day to be together. We really enjoy that. And so, um, Chael and his wife Jen are really influential in our lives, especially Chael. Uh, Chael discipled Steph and I and Zach Byler for about two years in a vehicle called a huddle, and that's a vehicle for discipleship that we use too. And so uh, just really excited to have them come and share out of their experience of how to make a marriage work and how do we make family work and those kinds of things. Um, so really stoked about that. Um, just wanna encourage us too to be attentive to the nudge to be praying for Christine Orr and Sydney Smith. Um, if you don't know, a week ago this past Friday, uh, Chris's daughter Savannah was killed in a car accident. We did that service on Thursday. And uh, I think we have a tendency to kind of be very aware of like a crisis until maybe the funeral, and then we all kind of move on with our lives. Uh, But if you've walked through death and grief, you know that it continues past that. And so um, just wanna encourage you that when there is a nudge to reach out or um, a poke to obey that, um, one of the questions I try to ask myself every day is, God, who are you inviting me to pay attention to today? And so um, when you ask that, if it happens to be Chris or, or uh, Sydney, feel free to reach out and check in um, even in the weeks ahead. Um, uh, this morning we're getting back into the book of 2 Samuel. Um, at Regen, we have a commitment, at Regen, we have a commitment to um, what technically is called expositional preaching. And expositional preaching is kind of working your way through a whole book of the Bible at a time. I like to call it Netflix binging on a book of the Bible at a time. So we binged the book of 1 Samuel this summer, and you can find uh, those episodes on our podcast uh, with the podcasting app near you. Um, and so we're going to be in 2 Samuel from now all the way through Palm Sunday, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, I don't tend to, some expositional preachers preach verse by verse through text. If I was preaching verse by verse through 2 Samuel, we would all be grandparents uh, or in seeing the face of Jesus uh, by the time that we got done to it. So I tend to look for an arc of a story. And so today the arc of the story kind of moves from chapter 2 verse 1 through um, chapter 5 verse 5. So that's where we'll be next week. We'll look at chapter 6 where um, David dances naked before the Lord. So if you think raising your hands in worship is weird, that's next level. Um, And not at all required. Please wear clothes. Uh, Actually, Chael, uh, who's coming to the marriage conference, in his town, there is a cult called the Naked Apostles. And I'll tell you what you hear the name, and it's all you need to know. You're right. You, you know, listen. So, um, so chapter seven is when David uh, receives the Davidic covenant. It's when he uh, begins the process of building the temple. And uh, chapter seven, chapter seven of Second Samuel is a high point of the Bible. So we'll be there the week after that. Um, but I wanted to kind of review Second Samuel or introduce Second Samuel for those of you just jumping in, and uh, and then we'll kind of get into the text before us, and it should only take about eight hours. So. Uh, We'll have a snack break at some point. Um, So uh, in our English Bibles, I'm going to jump out of order here. In our English Bibles... Uh, first and second Samuel are divided into two books, but in the original writing, it's just one story, and it's, uh, one continuous story about the rise of monarchy in Israel. Uh, and it's told through three or four, a story told through three or four key figures, um, Hannah, Samuel, Saul, and David. And so, uh, first Samuel opens with Hannah, a barren woman, uh, begging the Lord for a child. Uh, And and she promises that if she is given a child, she will dedicate that child to the Lord. She has a, she becomes pregnant. She has a son. She names him Samuel, which means I have asked of him from the Lord. Samuel grows up. um, It says that he grows up in stature uh, and favor with God and with men. Uh, He grows up in the very presence of the Lord in the tabernacle, the place of Israel's worship. Uh, He has profound spiritual authority. He's a prophet of the Lord. He, um... There's also a judge in Israel, a judge being kind of a more territorial ruler who resolves legal disputes and acts as a general uh, in battle. He's the last of Israel's judges, and after a defeat at the hand of the Philistines, which are kind of a people group uh, in Israel playing the bad guys in this part of history, after a defeat at the hands of the Philistines, the people of Israel ask for a human king. They reject God, who is their king, and they ask ask for a human monarch. And so enters Saul. Saul is tall, good-looking, and a total idiot. Um, And so if you're an idiot, good news, God can use you too. Um, (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, So no sooner does the crown hit Saul's head than it totally falls apart. Through foolishness and acts of disobedience, uh, the Lord rejects Saul as his king and chooses David. Uh, David is the youngest sibling in his family, and David is described as a man after God's own heart. God places David in Saul's royal court where Saul becomes jealous uh, of David's influence, of David's uh, own spiritual authority. So Saul Saul casts him from the royal court and spends about the last half of 1 Samuel chasing David through the wilderness. David, interestingly, he's given a number of chances to kill Saul, to kill his enemy. He refuses. He refuses to kill the Lord's anointed and uh, instead entrusts himself to God's timing and God's plan. Uh, as we turn the pages into 2 Samuel, Saul dies. And uh, we find something surprising. David laments his enemy. He doesn't throw a pizza party. He laments uh, the death of his enemy. And here's what's interesting about the kind of the structure of this. Uh, I I kind of deleted the arc and I'm sad I do it. But really in chapters kind of 8 through 31, we see Saul rise in influence And then kind of collapse into chapter one of uh, 2 Samuel. And kind of toward the middle part of 1 Samuel, you see David rise just as Saul is falling. And we start to get the sense of, okay, well, maybe David, maybe David is actually the king that we're hoping for. And by and large, David comes closest. But partway through 2 Samuel, David has a massive moral failing that sends ripples effects into his family, uh, that cause his family to rebel against him, uh, and Pretty soon, David ends in 2 Samuel, a weak, frail, spiritually bankrupt old man. And what you see is in um, chapter 1 of 1 Samuel and chapters 21 through 24 of 2 Samuel are these poems that emphasize a couple of key themes uh, in the book. Uh, one of them is intervention and reversal. We see over and over again in first and Second Samuel that God will suddenly bust in and reverse circumstances either for blessing or for curse, either for blessing or for curse. We see this theme of pride and humility, that God exalts people in their humility and he opposes them in their pride. And so as David humbles himself, God exalts him. But as David becomes more prideful, as 2 Samuel goes on, he finds himself losing more and more spiritual influence. Lastly, there's this idea of Messiah and kingdom, that the Lord is preparing a way for his chosen anointed king, spoiler alert, that's Jesus. Uh, who will reign in righteousness forever. All of the Bible, all of the Bible is one unified story pointing to Jesus. It's 66 books, it's a complex story, there's a lot of plot lines and plot twists and people and places and things that seem unfamiliar to us, but the whole arc of the Bible is one story that points to Jesus. And the books of Samuel advance that purpose uh, by showing that despite the outright rejection of God as their king, the Lord still seeks to be king of his people's hearts, that he opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He's moving his redemptive purposes forward. But this whole book is stirring in us a desire to see the king who really is God's own heart, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. All of the Old Testament, the the 39 books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, have these missing pieces in them that when we meet Jesus in the Gospels, we see him filling. He looks at the Old Testament and says, they testify about me right? And so there's this whole story that points to Jesus that we get to live in. Today, I want us to look at one of these stories, and we'll kind of see a little bit of a, a shadow of Jesus in it, too. Um, so look with me at first, excuse me, at 2 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Second Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, after this, meaning the death of Saul, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam and Abigail, and David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and there they anointed David, king over the house of judah but jump down to verse eight but abner the son of nair commander of saul's army took ishbosheth the son of saul now there's a biblical name right you can name your kid paul you can name your kid micah you can name him david ishbosheth is not nearly frequent enough so let's all take note <laughs> ishbosheth tenant doesn't quite work Took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead, the Asherites, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Listen, Saul is dead. Saul is dead, and David can come out of hiding. He has spent a great deal of his life running and hiding in caves and in wadis and among the Philistines. And now with Saul dead, we're led to believe that David can breathe a sigh of relief. Or can he? Saul is gone, but Abner, his general, takes the 11 tribes other than Judah and reigns over them. David gets one of Israel's 12 tribes, 11 to 1. I don't like the odds. We think as we turn the pages into 2 Samuel, okay, now David can take the throne. Now David can receive the promise. Now it's time for the happily ever after. But unfortunately for us, and even really more unfortunately for David, this isn't true. He becomes king over, again, just one of the 12 tribes. The other 11 fall under Abner, Saul's general, then under Ishbosheth. And then in other words, this opening section of Second Samuel isn't about God fulfilling his promises. This isn't about David stepping into the fullness of his calling. It is about waiting and waiting and more waiting. It's kind of like watching the Star Wars movies. You get through episodes four, five, and six, and then they release episodes one, two, and three, and we think we're good, and now we release episodes seven, eight, and nine, and you're thinking, well, this part of the story kind of feels familiar to that part of the story, and we kind of keep retelling the same story. When does it end exactly? I never want it to end. You know what I mean? Bring on episodes 10, 11, and 12. You know, we receive it, Jesus. But I know some of you are trapped in sin and don't like Star Wars, Um, so we pray for you. But there's this device, right, to the story that it kind of feels like it's on repeat. And it's because David isn't ready to be the king yet. There's more formation of David's character that needs to take place before he can be the king. It's not time for happily ever after. It's time for more waiting. It's time for more forming. And so chapter 3 verse 1 says there was a long war. It'll be two years. A long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. David will rule for seven and a half years over the tribe of Judah. The last two of those seven and a half years will be marked by civil war and bloodshed. In 2 Samuel 3 and 4, chapters 3 and 4, there are two episodes of violence. In chapter 3, Abner, Saul's general, decides to change teams. He decides to throw his weight behind David. He sees the writing on the wall, wants the violence to stop, so he goes to join David. But David's general, Joab, isn't happy with this. Abner killed Joab's brother, so he avenges his brother's death by bringing, um, by bringing Abner into the gate, which is kind of where public discussion kind of happened, like a Starbucks almost, and he rams him through with a sword while they're waiting for the barista to finish the latte. In 2 Samuel 4, two of uh, Ishbosheth's soldiers sneak into Ishbosheth's room in the middle of the night, cut off his head, and bring it to David. Um, I don't remember these in my Bible storybook from when I was a kid. Um, They bring it to David. They think they can curry favor with David. They think it can grow in popularity with David. They think they have a place in his kingdom if they bring him the head of Ishbosheth. But actually, David does to them exactly what he does to the guy who killed Saul. He kills him. There's all of this bloodshed, there's all of this intrigue, there's all of this going on in these chapters. And as you read first uh, excuse me, as you read 2 Samuel 2, 3, and 4, you kind of can't help but ask, where on earth is David? Where on earth is David in all of this? David has very little dialogue. He's practically non-existent in these chapters. He only shows up a few times. And one begins to wonder, well, is David passive? Is David conflict avoidant? That he stays out of the intrigue and the bloodshed and the drama and the this and the that? No, it's not that he's passive. It's not that he's conflict avoidant. It's a strategic choice to stay above the fray of the fighting, the bloodshed, the intrigue. He just refuses to play the Game of Thrones. What David, and here's what's interesting, is when David does speak, when David does appear, it reveals remarkable things about his character. When David does show up, when David does speak, it is always, always to bring order out of chaos, righteousness out of unrighteousness, and justice out of injustice. When David shows up, when David shows up, it is always to bring order out of chaos, it is to bring righteousness out of unrighteousness. It is to bring justice out of injustice. Listen, when Joab kills Abner in a public place in a shameful, underhanded way, he rebukes Joab and publicly mourns the death of Abner. And when the soldiers of Ishbosheth kill King Ishbosheth, David kills them. A mentor of mine has this fra- this, this little turn of a phrase. He says, "Pray and stay above the fray. Pray." and stay above the fray. David stays above the fray. David won't get down into the mud with the bloodshed, and the backstabbing, and the intrigue, and the he said, and the she said. David withdraws from all of it. He stays above the fray, and he prays. There's this really interesting little piece uh, in in the beginning of chapter 2, It says after this David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? It's not on the screen. That's a that's a false alarm. And the Lord said to him, Go up and David said, To which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there. Listen This conversation seems silly to report this back and forth about where do I go in Israel and you're going to go there. Well, shall I go up? Yes. And he goes, it's strange to report unless it's revealing to us the quality and depth and intimacy of relationship that David has with the Lord. I'm not saying, by the way, that like a good praying life is marked by waking up in the morning and saying, okay, Lord, do I need to wear the red socks or the blue socks? Do I need to eat the Cheerios or the Fruit Loops? Do I need to take this way to work or that way to work? But when it's matters of weight and matters of importance, David reveals a heart with the Lord that is a conversational, comfortable, intimate praying life. That means that he and the Lord can have a back and forth conversation about something. David is praying and staying above the fray. And not only is he praying, not only is he staying above the fray, he's obedient. David asks where he should go, and when the Lord says where, David obeys. And in the midst of the civil war and the bloodshed and the palace intrigue, David doesn't play the game of thrones. Instead, he prayerfully stays apart from it all, and when he does show up, he is so committed to righteousness and justice and order. He is patiently waiting for God to fulfill his purposes. He is patiently waiting for God to fulfill his purposes so he can step into his calling. And that happens at the uh, beginning of chapter 5. Then all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, Saul was king over us. It was you who led out and brought in Israel, and the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven and a half years, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. If you jump down to chapter five, verse 10, if you're following along your Bible, it says, and David became greater and greater for Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him. David became greater and greater. Here's my question this morning. Here's my question this morning. What happens when you get to the place where God has called you and it's difficult? what happens when you get to the place that god has called you to be and it's difficult what happens when you get what you want and you thought it and it ends up being harder than you ever imagined for david getting to the place of god's calling was a fight every day fleeing through the wilderness spears thrown at him Soldiers sneaking into his village at night to kill him. feigning madness, living among the Philistines, starving near to death. Getting even to this place where he's king over Judah is a fight. It was a fight for every inch. It was a fight for every step. And now David gets to the place of his calling. Shouldn't David be king? Shouldn't he be taking the throne? Of course he is, but not the whole kingdom. He gets to the place of his calling and it's hard What happens when all you ever wanted was to be married and then you get married and suddenly there's this strange person living in your house with you? What happens when you want the dream job and you finally get it, you move across the country to get it and it doesn't turn out the way that you thought it would? What happens when you get the degree and you can't find the job? What happens when you arrive at the destination and find that the goalpost has moved? What happens when you finally have the baby and then you find it nearly impossible to juggle all the responsibilities given to you? By the way, that last one is autobiographical. What happens when you get what you want and it's still hard? What happens when you retire and then you're kind of scraping by? What happens uh, when you get to your golden years and your loved one falls ill and instead of vacationing like all your friends are doing, you're now engaged in 24/ seven care? What happens? Wh- what happens when we get to the place of calling? What happens when we get to the place of calling? What happens when we get to what we want? And when we finally arrive there, we find out that it's harder and more challenging than we ever thought. Because here's the reality. We assume that when we step into the place of our calling, we assume that we get, when we get to the place that God wants us to be, that it will be smooth sailing from then on out. But if David's life in this season shows us anything, it shows us that we have assumed wrong. It's actually more likely that when we finally get into the pocket, it's more likely that when we get what we want, it's more likely that when we get into the place of our calling that we will experience more difficulty, more running through mud, more discouragement, more frustration, and more difficulty. And when the challenge and the difficulty and the frustration and the discouragement get on us, it's easy to think of ways to make it easier, to find a shortcut, to take matters into our own hands. I mean, wouldn't it have been easier for David if he just killed Ishbosheth? Wouldn't it have been easier if David had killed Abner? Wouldn't it have been easier if he had rewarded these soldiers for doing his dirty work, cutting off Ishbosheth's head in the middle of the night? See, when the challenge and the frustration and the discouragement and the difficulty come on us, when we're in the place of our calling, the temptation is to take matters into our own hands. We've waited so long. We've been so good to get to this point that we think, you know, just a little bit of sin will be okay because I deserve this. This is really hard, so just a little bit of porn will make it easier. This is really hard, so I'll just drink a little bit more to take the edge off. This is really hard, so I'm just going to plunge myself into a relationship that I know I shouldn't be in. This is really hard, so I'm just going to let loose a tiny little bit on my anger and my resentment and my passive-aggressive social media comments to get the attention of people around me so that I can punish them. When you get to the place of your calling and it's still hard, the temptation is to take matters into your own hands. The temptation is, I deserve this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just make it a little bit easier for myself. But the way that is faithful, the way that reflects the Lord, that reflects our commitment to the Lord, the way of faithfulness is to get through this moment in the same way that we got to this moment. And if we got to this moment with trust and righteousness and faithfulness and justice, we can't get to this moment and abandon it. If we got to this moment with goodness and kindness and steadfast love and faithfulness, Lord, we can't come to this moment and get out of it. The way that we get through this moment of difficulty as we step into our calling is not to abandon what we've known, but to double down on what we've known. It's to further befriend faithfulness. It's to further befriend love. It's further befriend righteousness while we wait for the Lord to fulfill his promise for this season. While we wait for the Lord. If you have a Bible, turn over to Psalm chapter 37. Psalm chapter 37. This is a Psalm of David. I have no exegetical reason to believe this, but I can't help but wonder if some of what David is experiencing right now is influencing the way that he's writing this. Psalm 37. Two verses. David says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Jump down to verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. David says, Be still, wait patiently. Don't fret yourself over the one who prospers. David says, I'm sitting in this place of waiting and trusting the Lord, and I'm not looking at Ishbosheth, I'm not I'm not looking at Abner. I'm not looking at the way that they're getting ahead. I'm not looking at the way my peers are getting ahead through sin. I'm going to sit right here and wait patiently for the Lord. I'm going to wait for the Lord and keep his way. And when I do that, David says, you will exalt, he will exalt you to inherit the land. That's exactly what happens to David. He waits for the Lord. He keeps the Lord's way. And after two years of civil war, after bloodshed, after all sorts of insanity, the Lord exalts him to inherit the land. He becomes king over all 12 tribes. He expands the nation borders. And here's the deal. David says, you will look on when the wicked are cut off. David says, you will not participate in the cutting off of the wicked, but you will stand over here by praying and staying above the fray, by waiting on the Lord. You will stand here and watch while the evil get their just deserts. Waiting on the Lord is not what you and I do in the doctor's office. Waiting on the Lord is not. Are there any other tune blasters in the room? Anybody a tune blaster? Yes, thank you, Lisa. I'm a tune blaster. I'm trapped on level 13. So let's talk after. Uh, But when we wait, what do we do? We distract ourselves. When we wait, we seek to not be present. When we wait, we seek to disengage. That is not waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is the prayerful posture of being engaged and leaning in and holding on to the promises until you see them fulfilled. Waiting on the Lord is the leaning in of choosing faithfulness and righteousness. It's the, it's the leaning in of being engaged with God while we wait for him to fulfill his promises. Andrew Murray says this. This is a long quote. Andrew Murray says, God is a wise farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it. He cannot gather the fruit until it is ripe. He cannot gather the fruit until it is ripe. He knows when we are spiritually ready to receive the blessing to our prophet in his glory. Waiting in the sunshine of his love is what will ripen the soul for his blessing. Waiting under the cloud of trial that breaks in showers of blessing is as necessary. This is so good. Be assured that if God waits longer than you could wish, it is only to make the blessing doubly precious. God waited 4,000 years until the fullness of time before he sent his son. Our times are in his hands. He will avenge his elect speedily. He will make haste for our help and not delay one hour too long. Be assured that if God waits longer than you could wish, it is only to make the blessing doubly precious. He cannot gather the fruit until it is ripe. David did not receive the king, the whole kingdom for seven and a half years because it wasn't ripe yet. And some of the waiting that we are doing is this ripening process that makes us ready to receive. The waiting that we are doing makes us ready to receive. And I'm reminded of um, the story out of the Gospel of John, Mary and Martha, two of friends of Jesus, um, send a message, uh, message to Jesus and says, our brother is sick, he's dying, can you come help? And Jesus doesn't come. And so he dies, Lazarus dies. And they lay him in a tomb, and a day goes by, and another day goes by, and another day goes by, and on the third day, Jesus comes rolling into town. I don't know what kind of lollygagging Jesus was doing. It's what my mother called it lollygagging. Faffing is what our British friends would call it. Jesus rolls into town, and Mary and Martha look at him and said, But Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus looks at them and says, "Let's go to the cemetery." And so they walk there, and uh, Jesus looks at the tomb and he says, "Roll the stone aside." And uh, one of the sisters in the King James version, Martha, one of the sisters says, "But Lord, he stinketh." I was a youth pastor. Boys stinketh before they're dead. You know what I mean? And uh, but Lord, he stinketh. And they open the tomb and Jesus calls his name and Lazarus comes walking out. And it was a greater blessing to see their brother walk out of the tomb than it would have been for Jesus to heal him. It wasn't ripe yet. It wasn't ripe yet. And so there was waiting. And for David, he wasn't ripe yet. And so there was more faithfulness and more justice, and more righteousness required, and and I don't know what you're waiting for. I don't know what you're waiting for, but I'm well aware of the temptation to take matters into your own hands. I'm well aware of, of the anxiety of wondering if God is hearing. And the way forward, friends, in this moment is more waiting. It's more righteousness. It's more justice. It's it's more faithfulness. Trusting that in the words of Paul, he is faithful and he will do it. He will do it. Let me pray. Jesus we come to you this morning and we remind you of our waiting. We remind you of uh, the places where we would like for you to move and you aren't. We remind you of our waiting, and uh, we also name the ways that we would, um, the ways that we would take matters into our own hands. The relationships that we're pursuing the substance that we're chasing down, the anger that we're letting go, the worry that we're letting take over. We invite you to bring us back to faithfulness. We invite you to bring us back to that place of waiting and ripening. So restore our trust and refresh us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.